What a joy to be able to honor him, church. Let's open up our Bibles to John chapter 11 and honor him in the reading and preaching and listening of his word. We're in John chapter 11 as we're continuing to make our way through the gospel of John, and we'll be looking this morning at verses 1 through 16. If you grab the Bible in front of you, it'll be on page number 897 in the chair beneath, uh, underneath in front of you. John chapter 11, verses 1 to 16. The word of God reads, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. And we thank you, Lord, that we can read your word. We thank you, Lord that we have this account, and we thank you, Lord, that in this account, your son is revealed. And as we see your son, we see you, Father. Lord, I pray that you would encourage every heart, that all of us, Lord, would be able to block out the things that are vying for our attention, Lord, and that we'd be able to honor you by humbly listening, Lord, and be encouraged by the truths that are contained in this text. We need them, Lord. And others need them, Lord. So may we learn well and listen well 
so that we can preach and encourage well. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Bright days quickly become dark nights. It was truly unprecedented times for a little village named Bethany. Many of her residents had come to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And in this little town just outside of Jerusalem, they were even so blessed to have the Messiah travel her dusty roads and visit her. Martha, we are told in Luke chapter 10, heard that the Messiah was traveling through and she ran out and saw to it that the Messiah would be her guest in her home. And she welcomed him and his disciples in and hosted, working anxiously and, and, and with great effort. And as she looked over, she saw her sister, not helping with the work, but sitting, doing what looked like to her like she was doing nothing. And she went to Jesus to air her grievance to Jesus and to ask Jesus to get her sister to get to work. And Jesus said that her sister Mary had chosen what was better. And so Mary and Martha both got to learn from Jesus. And all those in their house got to learn from Jesus. And a friendship was forged on this visit and strengthened on others. So much so that when we come to our text, we see that Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus were loved by Jesus. They were his friends. He cared about them deeply. And the fact that they got to share those days with him were bright days, joyous days. They got to break bread in their home with the Messiah and sing with him and learn from him. There could be no better days for them. And they enjoyed his light. They enjoyed the light that he shone in their home and in their hearts. But fast forward some time, and the little village of Bethany had grown concerned. One of her residents, Lazarus, became ill. Mary and Martha and Lazarus knew that Jesus had healed the sick wherever he went. They knew that he had authority over demons and over disease and over death. But Jesus wasn't there. And Lazarus was getting worse. And I think they began to wonder what all of us begin to wonder what every follower of Jesus begins to wonder when they and their loved ones endure sickness, suffering, and death. Does Jesus know? Does Jesus care? Is Jesus doing something? Have you been there? I know some of you are there right now. Does Jesus know what I'm going through? Does Jesus care? Is he going to do something? Our church has faced the loss, even sudden loss, of various family members and friends over the last year. And I trust that this passage will be a comfort to us. 
And even if you haven't lost anyone or you feel like you haven't endured much sickness or suffering or death, I want you to still listen and not check out for two reasons. One is because the world is not only about you. And if you've managed to escape these things for a time or for a season or maybe even so far in your life, you need to be equipped in order to encourage and minister and love those who are suffering around you. And then secondly, these things will come your way eventually. And they say that an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. So if you will have these truths hidden in your heart now by listening, then when trials and difficulty and suffering and sickness and death comes to you and those close to you, you will have truths that can hold you up. And so the main idea of our passage here is that in John chapter 11, verses 1 through 16, we see three soul-comforting and faith-building truths that every follower of Jesus needs to keep in mind when they and their loved ones endure sickness, suffering, and death. And so let's begin with the first soul-comforting and faith-building truth. It's very simple. It's that Jesus knows. Jesus knows. Jesus knows. When facing trials and difficulties, it is an immense comfort to be able to simply know that Jesus knows. You're not in it alone. You're not in whatever you're in, experiencing whatever you're experiencing to the ignorance of Jesus. No, Jesus knows. In our passage, we see clearly that Jesus knows. In our passage, we have two different groups of disciples that are anxious and fearful because they're facing life and death situations. We have Mary and Martha who are concerned about their brother Lazarus who's going to die. And then we have the disciples who are with Jesus who are concerned that if Jesus goes back into the same area that they just tried to kill them, then they, Jesus or they possibly too are going to die. And what's amazing is that both groups speak to Jesus as if Jesus doesn't know. But Jesus knows. Jesus knows what will happen with Lazarus. Jesus knows what will happen to him and his disciples. And so let's see this first. Jesus knows what will happen to Lazarus. Verses 1 through 3 read that now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. And it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. Now, it's interesting because Mary is mentioned in this act that she did is mentioned before he, John has even got to that point in his story. So he's leaping ahead, if you will. Look at chapter 12. We, that's where you would see uh, that there's a, a dinner for Lazarus, uh, for, for Jesus, um, and Lazarus is there, and Mary and Martha are there, and Mary takes a pound of expensive ointment and, and anoints Jesus' feet and wipes his feet with her hair. Why would John mention this now when he hasn't even got to this? I think the reason is because she was famous for that incident. 
And so as John is writing in this, those who would read his gospel would already know the Mary that he's talking about. And, and knowing that, they would then anticipate that there is a, a familiarity, there's a friendship, there's a closeness, there's an intimacy. And we're to read this passage on that backdrop. Jesus knows Mary, and he knows Lazarus, and he knows Martha. Jesus knows. He knows what's going to happen to, to Lazarus. And I can't help but think of what the conversation must have been like if you're Mary and Martha and Lazarus and you trust Jesus and you know his healing power. You know that he healed plenty of, of strangers that, that went to him but, and, and you're faithful followers of him, but he's not there and one of you is now sick and getting worse and worse. Maybe you wonder, should we tell the teacher? Should we go tell Jesus Well, we know that he knows. We know that he can heal. Should we go to him? Should we ask? Should we ask of him? Is that, are we interrupting him? Can we do that? Is that okay? I I don't know all the different things that they're thinking. Maybe they're thinking that Jesus, Jesus will, will, you know, if we just tell him, then Jesus can just heal him instantly. Lots of different things that are probably running around through their mind, but Lazarus is getting more and more sick. And so, what if Jesus doesn't know? Maybe we should send a message to him and ask for his help. And so, it says in verse 3, the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. And Jesus responds and says that this sickness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And so, we're beginning to see some of the things that Jesus knows. He knows the outcome of Lazarus's illness. He says that this illness will not lead to death. But given how these circumstances unfold, it kind of looks like Jesus doesn't know. Because if you can imagine either of these two scenarios, either Jesus sends the messenger back with his message, and that messenger gets there, just before Lazarus dies and tells Mary and Martha and Lazarus, here's what Jesus says. This illness will not or does not lead to death. And time goes by a short amount of time and Lazarus dies. What would you think? What would you feel? Would you think that Jesus knows? Jesus, what do you mean? This does not lead to death. The other scenario is that the messenger arrives and Lazarus is already dead. That's not any better of a scenario. Mary, Martha already preparing him for burial and the messenger arrives. And what did the teacher say? What did the Messiah tell us? And he told us this sickness, this illness does not lead to death, but is for the glory of God that the Son of God might be glorified through it. What, what do you mean, Jesus? What do you, he's dead already. Can you imagine the confusion that they would have? It seems like Jesus doesn't know in either of those situations. But Jesus knows. And Mary and Martha are forced in that instance to trust 
that Jesus knows something they don't know. Jesus knows the illness. Jesus knows why the illness will not lead to death. Jesus knows how this illness will lead to the glory of the Father and the Son rather than the death of Lazarus. Jesus knows these things so well that in verse 6 it says that he stayed there two days longer in the place where he was. And then we, if you jump down, we find out in verse 11 that Jesus knows more than the messenger has told him. The messenger came and said that Lazarus, the one whom you love, is sick. And when Jesus tells his disciples it's time to go, he tells his disciples that Lazarus is not just sick, but he is dead. He says in verse 11, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I will go to awaken him. And the disciples are confused by this a little bit. They say, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. It says that Jesus had spoken of his death, and Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. Who told Jesus that Lazarus had died? The messenger who had already left to go back with the message that Jesus gave him? No. How did Jesus know? He knew. He knows his sheep. Do you remember that? Just one chapter before? He knows his sheep. He knows not only that Lazarus has died, he knows that Lazarus will live. And he knows that not only will, has Lazarus died and that Lazarus will live, but Jesus is going to go to Lazarus and wake him up. Jesus knows. He knows it does not, this illness does not lead to death. Jesus knows that it leads to a resurrection. That's why he says, I will go and wake him up. Jesus knows that all those involved, all those witnessing this, all those who hear about this event, all those who read about this event for 2,000 years and counting will see the glory of God in the sickness and suffering and, yes, even death of Lazarus because he will be raised as well. And the glory of the Father will be seen and manifested and made known by the Son and people will see and look to the Son and know that this is the one whom the Father has given all things and has given him the authority to judge and the authority to give life to whom he wills, to raise the dead and to judge them. Who can do that except Jesus Christ alone? We get a glimpse of that in John chapter 11. And what I find amazing is Jesus knows and even declares what he knows beforehand, which that's, that's the kind of thing that only God can do. In Isaiah chapter 46, verse 9 and 10, it says, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. I declare the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. What has Jesus just done? That exact same thing. He has declared the end from the beginning. This illness does not lead to death. I will go and awaken him. 
He knows what he is doing. He knows the present. He knows the future. He knows the past. He knows what's going on. He is accomplishing all his purposes. So rest in him. Rest in him. Don't be concerned whether or not he knows. He does know. He sees. He is aware. He is not uninformed. He's not distracted. He's not looking the other way. He knows. But not only does Jesus know what will happen with Lazarus, he knows what will happen with the disciples. Jesus says something that strikes panic into the hearts of the disciples. He says, let us go again to Judea. And when he says this, it says, the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? They're concerned about Jesus, and they're likely concerned about their own lives as well. And if you remember, just before, in John chapter 10, Jesus was in Jerusalem. He was in the temple. He was, he was preaching and teaching, and he claimed that he was the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. And he was teaching that no one can snatch his sheep from his hand, that he and the Father are one. And the response was they picked up stones to stone and kill Jesus. And Jesus makes his way out of there. He escapes from them and goes, goes to another, another place. So can you imagine the disciples? Like, we, we just barely escaped. We just got out alive, and you're saying, Jesus, that we need to go back there. Like, you're, you are the most wanted person in Jerusalem, Jesus. Every minute that we spend in that area is in a minute where our lives are in peril. Do you not know Jesus how crazy an idea this is. Do you not know how risky? Do you not know how dangerous? Do you not understand that we can lose our lives? Jesus' disciples, they're so hesitant. Look, at, I love this. Uh, Jesus says, let us go to Judea. And they say, Rabbi, they were just trying to stone you, and are you going? <laughs> Are you going there again? Like you sense the hesitation. They're like still undecided if we're going with them or not. But Jesus, you're going? And, and Jesus says to them, because he knows. He says in verse 9, Are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Jesus is here reassuring his disciples who are afraid that Jesus might die and that they might die, that it's still daytime. He, he says that, are there not 12 hours in the day? And the idea here is that, that there'd be typically 12 hours of sunlight in a day. And while that sunlight is up, you go out, you can see where you're going, you can do work, you can be productive. So you can do what needs to be done. But if you try to do that at night, then it is dangerous. One of the things that Jesus says back, if you jump back over to chapter 9, we get more insight into this sort of a statement that Jesus is making. And he says that in regards to the blind man, when the disciples asked whether this man sinned or his parents, Jesus said it was not this man who sinned or his parents, but that the works of God 
might be displayed in him. And then Jesus says, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And then he spat on the ground and healed the blind man's eyes. So what is Jesus saying when he says, oh, they're not 12 hours in the day? How is this reassuring to the disciples who are concerned about Jesus dying and them possibly dying? Jesus is saying, there's still time left to work. We still have the works of God to work. It's still day. My hour has not yet come. And the only way, pay attention to this, the only way that you could be reassured by that is if Jesus truly knows what time it is. Is it daytime or nighttime? And when is it shifting into where? I don't know. The disciples don't know, but Jesus knows. And if Jesus says it's still 12 hours, there's still daylight, there's still work to do, then we can never be safer than being with Jesus. Because Jesus knows. Jesus knows what time it is. He knows that, yes, humanly speaking, it's dangerous, it's risky, it's, it's, it, it looks like a suicide mission, but he knows that he still have works, the works of the Father to do. And so he goes and he brings his disciples and they go. And he knows that he's going to make it there because he says that I'm going to wake up Lazarus. So he knows what he's going to do. He knows that they'll make it there safely and he says all of this so that they will believe. He actually says something I think is astounding. Jesus says, for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. Jesus knows that, that by going and by working the works of God, that God has given him to work in the raising of Lazarus, that the disciples and their faith will be strengthened, confirmed, established, and growing, and bolstered, and inflamed. And he can say that knowing what is, how it's going to affect his disciples, and even how it's going to affect others who we're told later in chapter 11, who had come with Mary and had seen, they ended up believing. Jesus, for all these reasons, can say that he is glad so that they may believe. So Jesus knows when facing trials and difficulties, it's an immense comfort to know that. What are you in right now? He knows. What are you facing? He knows. What are you suffering? What are you enduring? He knows. But this then leads to a second point, a second soul-comforting truth that every believer needs to keep in mind, and also a faith-building one. It's not only that Jesus knows, it's that he cares. He, he doesn't just know and is indifferent. He doesn't just know and is cold and calloused and, and, and distant. It's not like his heart is, is shut off from you. He knows, but he's keeping himself from you. No, he knows and he cares. In our passage, we see the care and love of Jesus highlighted. We see the, the relationship described in our passage in verse 5. It says that Jesus, what? He loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus. When Martha and Mary sent the message, they said, Lord, the one whom you love is ill. 
And when Jesus would show up, he would weep. And people would even say, see how he loved him. Jesus loves. Jesus cares for his people. There's no question about that. And his, his care and his love, though, is deeper and broader and more comprehensive than any sort of love you could have ever hoped. I want you to notice Jesus has a deep and wide love that does not rush to relieve all pain immediately. He has a type of love that works perfectly for their good. He knows what is best, does what is best, at the best time, according to the best plan, for their best, for their good. And it's this sort of love that's emphasized in an unexpected shift that takes place between verses 5 to 6. Did you get it when we read it earlier? Look at it closely. Verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So... On the basis of his love. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days? You're like, did I, mis- did I misread this? So he loved them. So when he heard Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days? What kind of love is that? That doesn't look like love. That doesn't feel like love. What would love do? Wouldn't love leave immediately? Wouldn't love seek to to fix the problem right away? Wouldn't love just snap the fingers and you'd be healed? Remember, Jesus, you don't even have to go there. I mean, you've done that one before. So how is it that he loved and so he stayed? The answer is that he loved and so he stayed and he stayed because he loved. And it's a type of love that's bigger and wider and higher than any of us would choose for ourselves. There's an English writer from the 1800s named Hannah Moore. And in a book called Religion of the Heart, she writes this. She says, we're circumstances at our own disposal. Meaning, if we're in control of all our own circumstances, she says, we would choose for ourselves nothing but ease and success, nothing but riches and fame, nothing but perpetual youth, health, and unmitigated happiness. We are placed on earth temporarily, and our situation in eternity depends on the use we make of this present time. And so she says, therefore, nothing would be more dangerous than such a power to choose for ourselves, speaking of uh, choosing all our own circumstances. And she says, if a surgeon were to put into the hand of a wounded patient the probe or the scalpel, how tenderly would he treat himself? How skin deep would be the examination? How slight the incision? The patient would escape the pain But the wound might prove fatal. The surgeon, therefore, wisely uses his instruments himself. He goes deep, perhaps, but not deeper than the case demands. The pain may be acute, but the life is preserved. 
Thus, he in whose hand we are is too good and loves us too well to trust us with our own surgery. He knows that we will not contradict our inclinations, that we will not impose on ourselves any voluntary pain, however necessary the infliction, however healthful the effect. God graciously does this for us himself because otherwise he knows that it would never be done. Would Mary and Martha choose this for themselves? Would Lazarus choose that for for themselves? They might think that Jesus isn't loving, but Jesus is loving, and he cares for them deeply. It's why he gives Mary and Martha the message to hold on to until he comes. It's why he assures his disciples that he knows what time it is. It's why he is even glad because of the effect and result that is going to be worked out and how it will benefit the disciples. Jesus knows and Jesus cares. He cares more about you and me than we care about ourselves. He knows that this will lead to blessing. He knows that on the other side of this suffering is a revelation of glory. I was reading uh, some of a biography of John Patton, who is a missionary to the cannibalistic tribes of the New Hebrides group, uh, or people group. Is a, the New Hebrides is a group of islands in the South Pacific. And John Patton got there, and he was there for about three months learning the language, just getting planted. People were supporting him. And he builds a home on the island. And three months into his missionary journey, his wife and his son die of malaria. Three months into it. His son was 36 days old. He wrote this after he buried his wife and son. Obviously, he wrote much, many other things as well, but listen to his faith here. He wrote over his wife and child's grave, quote, feeling, immo- immo- excuse me, feeling immovably assured that my God and Father was too wise and loving to err in anything that he does or permits. I looked up to the Lord for help and struggled on in his work. There's another occasion where he was surrounded and the people were literally egging each other on to who would, would t- take, make the first blow against him. And he says, he wrote in his journal that my heart rose up to the Lord Jesus. I saw him watching all the scene. My peace came back to me like a wave from God. I realized that I was immortal till my master's work with me was done. 
the assurance came to me as if a voice out of heaven had spoken that not a musket would be fired to wound us, not a club prevailed to strike us, not a spear leave the hand in which it was held vibrating to be thrown, not an arrow leave the bow or, or a killing stone the fingers without the permission of Jesus Christ. In Excuse me, whose is all power in heaven and on earth? He rules all nature, animate and inanimate, and restrains even the savage of the South Seas. He knew that Jesus knew. He knew that Jesus cares. And he knew something else. He knew that death, even the death of his loved ones, did not mean that Jesus didn't care. And this is the thing that we struggle with. We think, well, yeah, he, his caring is to the point, but then if, if the person dies, then he must not have cared. And if you think about that, then that means that Jesus didn't care for Lazarus because Lazarus died. And if you think about that a little bit deeper, then you think that the father didn't care about the son because he let his son die. You see, our vision of love and care is not wide enough. It's too narrow. Death cannot prove that God does not care for his followers. Why? Because he has promises and love that are a death-conquering, grave-opening love. Death is not the end of the story. Paul would say that he asked his questions in Romans 8. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. He says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And he says, for I am sure that neither death nor life, angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus knows and Jesus cares. This leads to our third point, and it's this. Jesus is at work. Jesus is at work. I know that he knows. I know that he cares. But is he going to do something about this? The answer is, he already is doing something about it. He already is doing something about it through it. It could not have even taken place without him if he were not bringing some good out of it, if he were not revealing some glory through it, if he were not offering some consolation and some confidence and some faith-building truth for his people. He is at work. Jesus in our passage is at work. He's hearing. He's speaking. He's staying. Even when Jesus stays, guess what he's doing? He's working. Even when he sits, he's working. Even when he remains, he's working. 
Jesus in this passage knows and he speaks and he explains and he goes and he brings disciples along with him. He was at work when he told, uh, when he told Mary that this sickness does not lead to death. He was at work when he sent the messenger back to them. He's at work when he tells his disciples that it's time for work. He was at work when they go. He was at work when they arrive. He's at work when they safely show up there. He is at work. What is he at work doing? The same thing that the illness was doing. What, what did Jesus say the illness was doing? This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. What was the illness for? The glory of God. What was the death for? What was Lazarus' death for? Is for the glory of God. What was Jesus? Why did Jesus become in flesh? Why did the word become flesh? So you could see his glory. So that you could glorify God. That seeing the glory of the Son, you would see and know the glory of the Father. Jesus says in John 17 that the glory that you have given me, Father, I have given them. And he also mentions that he has shown and manifested his name, your name. So the reputation, the honor, the attributes, the person, the character of God has been seen and revealed through the Son, through everything that the Son did. This is why he came. He came to work the works of the Father that reveal the glory of the Father. He came to do the will of the Father. He came to save sinners by a sacrificial death. And as we heard in Philippians chapter 2 earlier, he came and he even is obedient to the point of death, death on the cross, and God then exalts him and gives him the name above all names. And then we're told later in that passage that, that this is all to the glory of God the Father. What was the point of the illness? What was the point of Christ's ministry? The same thing that is the point of everything. The glory of God. The glory of God and the revelation of the glory of God so the people of God can see and enjoy and savor and delight in worship, in praise. This is why John Piper loves to say that missions exist because worship doesn't. And that, that God is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in him. The revealing of God's glory leads to us delighting and praising him and offering worship to him. Romans chapter 11 says that from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. So let me just give you a quiz. Some things are to the glory of God or all things are to the glory of God? All things are to the glory of God. You, A plus. Isn't that comforting? We usually sell that short by thinking all things are to the glory of God except to the point of death. No. God's love is wider. His glory is far more expansive. And death, our deaths, is an instrument in the hand of our Redeemer to reveal him and glorify him. 
This is why in Romans chapter 14, Paul can say that none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or we die, we are the Lord's. And in John chapter 21, after Peter had denied Jesus three times and Jesus is reinstating Peter and asking Peter, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, yes, you know that I love you. And he asks him again. And you know, Peter says, yes, Lord, you know all things. How's that for our first point? Peter says, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus says, feed my sheep and feed my lambs. And after that, Jesus says, truly, truly, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And it says that this he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this to him, he said to Peter, follow me. Where, where did that take Peter when he followed Jesus? It took him right to the martyr's death that Peter suffered following Jesus. And it was tragic, yes, but it was to the glory of God. I think that we have forgotten, we have overlooked that when it comes to Christ. We surrender our lives to him. And every day, not just the days that we live, but even in the day of our death is for the Lord. Death poses no barrier to the work of Christ bringing good and revealing his father and saving sinners. He takes death. He subdues death. He uses death for the glory of God and the saving joy of his saints. There's some different takes on Thomas's comment at the end of this passage. After Jesus tells the disciples, let's go to Judea, it says in verse 16, Thomas the twin said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Some think Thomas is being sarcastic. Some think that he doesn't trust Jesus. Some think, uh, though, that Maybe he's misunderstood, but he's at least loyal and willing to die with Christ. I, I, I don't know for sure, but I'm going to take Thomas in the charitable light. And if he thinks it's a death sentence to go with Jesus, I'm encouraged by the fact that he's ready to go. He's ready to go with Jesus and follow Jesus even to his death. And this is exactly what Jesus calls for in discipleship. He says, deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. He promises elsewhere that if you lose your life for my sake, you will find it. And so we understand that death is not the end of the story for believers. Death was not the end of the story for Jesus. And really, death is not the end of the story even for unbelievers. Jesus says in John chapter, John chapter 5, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. 
those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Some of you may be thinking, wow, that would have been pretty cool if I could, you know, be like Lazarus. If, 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 if I died and then he brought me back to life, that would be pretty amazing. And, and then the, the rest of the people all around would be like, that's the guy who Jesus raised from the dead, as we're going to see in chapter 12. But what this passage in John 5 is, is, is making clear is that every single one of us will have a resurrection. Every single one of us will be raised bodily by the voice and power and life-giving work of the Messiah on the last day. Every single one of us, the believer and the non-believer, and then he will judge between those who he has caused to rise. And some will go to everlasting glory, the resurrection of life, and others to the darkness and judgment of everlasting death. How do we know that that's true? Because we see it proved the raising of Lazarus. He, Jesus, is the one who has all power, all authority. He is the one who knows. He is the one who cares. And he is the one who is at work in every life and in every death. There's not a single moment, a single circumstance, a single thing that can befall you or me apart from the caring, shepherdly providence of our Savior. And that should be enough for us. That should comfort our souls deeply. That should give us great and bold faith that we know that we are in his hand, that he will keep us that he is watching over us, that he is at work in us and through us, that he is for us and that he is with us. He is the resurrection and the life. He is the one for whom all things exist. If we have him, we have life. His steadfast love is better than life. And when you know that, and when you know him, you can live fearlessly. You can live fearlessly. Jim Elliot once said that he is no fool. Jim Elliot was a, a martyr as well. He says that he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And I was reading in John Piper's book, Providence, this week, and I want to read to you a quote. He says, such merciful providence over life and death is the rock of stability and the unpredictable upheaval of every generation. That's, that kind of rock-solid confidence in the face of death has emboldened missionaries for 2,000 years. The truth of God's providence has been the stabilizing power for thousands of Christ's emissaries. Believing that God holds life and death and always works mercy for his children has freed them to embrace the dangers of the mission and sustained them when death came. Henry Martin, missionary to India and, and Persia, who died when he was 31, wrote in his journal nine months before he died, quote, 
To all appearance, the present year will be more perilous than any I have seen. But if I live to complete the Persian New Testament, my life after that will be of less importance. But whether life or death be mine, may Christ be magnified in me. If he has work for me to do, I cannot die. You hear that? If he has work for you to do, you cannot die. John Piper also shared about Elizabeth Elliot, who was asked to speak at another missionary who was in an airplane, and his wife and his son, the airplane was shot down because they thought it was a, like a drug plane. He survived. The pilot survived, was able to, to land, and this husband who lost his wife and his son, they're having the funeral. Elizabeth Elliot, who lost her husband on the mission field, said this at that funeral. He says, you wonder what God is doing, and of course, we know that God never makes mistakes. He knows exactly what he is doing, and suffering is never for nothing. He says, he has given to you, Jim, the cup of suffering, and you can share that with the Lord Jesus who said, the cup that my Father has given to me, I have received. And then she read this poem by Martha Snell Nicholson, which I want to read to you as well. This poem says, I stood mendicant of God before his royal throne and begged him for one priceless gift which I could call my own. I took the gift out his hand, but as I would depart, I cried, but Lord, this is a thorn and it has pierced my heart. This is strange, a hurtful gift which thou hast given me. He said, my child, I give good gifts and gave my best to thee. I took it home, and though at first the cruel thorn hurt sore, as long years passed, I learned at last to love it more and more. I learned he never gives a thorn. Without this added grace, he takes the thorn to pin aside the veil which hides his face. Let me just say that last line for you. I learned he never gives a thorn. Without this added grace, he takes the thorn to pin aside the veil which hides his face. And John Piper says, in the end, this is the final mercy of God's painful providences to pin aside the veil which hides the face of Christ. God always means for us to know him and treasure him more deeply and thoroughly through the losses in our lives. I said in the beginning that bright days lead to dark nights, even for followers of Jesus Christ. But it's also true that dark nights break forth with the light of a glorious day. While Jesus was on the earth, he, had, he was the light of the world. 
Now that he's resurrected and ascended to heaven and directing all things and building his church and interceding on behalf of us and has given us his spirit to dwell in us and to empower us to preach him so that people can hear him and see him and behold him and worship him. We now are the light of the world. And we are here to shine. And as long as we are here, we have work to do. So church, may we be about it. May we shine bright. There's still time left. It's still daytime. Get to work. Point people to Christ. Shine. Shine the light of Christ. We follow him. Even in this age of present darkness, we follow him through darkness, through darkness, rejoicing because we know that the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. So let the truths that Jesus knows and cares and is at work lead you to shine brightly, even in the midst of sickness, suffering, and death. Lord, bless your people. Press these truths upon our souls, Lord, so that they comfort us, Lord, and build us up and motivate us to death-defying proclamation of your word to our neighbors, Lord, and to the ends of the earth. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.